History does not depend on humans. History is his story. And God uses fallible people to fulfill his perfect purposes, which is very timely for us to remember, especially what's going on on planet Earth today. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. If you'd open your Bibles to Daniel 11, Daniel 11, we're going to take a look at the first uh, probably two-thirds of this. Fascinating passage today, very, very timely as you'll see as we get into it. This is one of the most detailed prophecies in the Old Testament. The detail is minute and accurate. So it's a fascinating question to ask, why does God give us prophecy, specifically this detail? Well, we've talked about this throughout the book of Daniel, for those of you that have been here, God predicts the future in advance and then makes it happen, number one, to authenticate his word, to demonstrate that the Bible is divine origin. It's not the words of man, it's the words of God, because God predicts the future in his word and then makes it happen in detail. Number two, it demonstrates his deity. And number three, it increases our faith. When you read prophecy that God has written hundreds of years in advance and then he makes it happen, it gives you confidence that God is in control of this world. Do you need to know that God's in control of the planet at this point? Yes, it's very important you do that. So only the God who lives outside space and time can control events inside space and time. No human can do that. So God, remember, let me give you a little context. God prompted Cyrus, King Cyrus, the first king of Persia, to issue a decree to free the Jews to go back to the homeland and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Now, God's goal was for them to get back to the land. The reason is God told Israel, as you recall, in Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, he said, look, Israel, your purpose is to be a nation of priests for me. A priest is a go-between. A priest goes between God and humanity. And God said, I want a relationship with the nations of the planet. Israel, you're going to be the go-between between me and the nations of the world. I'm going to reveal myself to you. I'm going to give you my law. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to plant you in a very geographically centric part of the universe in Israel. And I'm going to place you there. And I want you to represent me to the nations of the earth. Now, that's our job today as members of the church. We represent God. We're ambassadors for Christ on the planet. Israel had that job description uh, in the Old Testament at that point. This job description required Israel to leave Persia and go back to the land. However, they didn't do that. There was well over a million Jews in Persia. Only about 42,000 of them had actually gone back to Israel after Cyrus's decree. The rest of them were very, very comfortable in Persia. Most of them had been born there. They had been established there. They were comfortable. Now, here's the problem. Comfort can seduce us into disobedience because we love our comfort, right? 
That which is uncomfortable is harder to obey. The Jews, think about it. They, wanted to, they didn't want to go through the hardships of a 900-mile walk back to the land. That's about several months. They didn't want to go through the trials of rebuilding a nation with opposition. So Israel, living in Persia, was not representing God to the Persians. They were living like the Persians. They had become part of the culture. So in this prophecy, Daniel 11, God told Daniel that he was going to bring trials and trouble, persecutions and problems against Israel. He also reassured them, however, that he was in control of everything that occurred to their lives. Now this prophecy in Daniel 11 occurred in 536 B.C., and it can be divided into five parts. Five parts. We're going to go through four of them today. Lord willing, we'll go through the fifth one next week. Verse 2 is a prophecy regarding Persia. Persia. Remember, there were four kingdoms. We had Babylonia, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Well, the first one's about Persia. Number 2, verse 3 and 4 are prophecies regarding Greece. Verses 5 through 20 is a soap opera, bar none. And it describes the struggles of the kings of the south, which is the dynasties of the Ptolemies in Egypt, and the kings of the north, which is the dynasty of the Seleucids in Syria. Verses 21 through 25, 21 through 35, describe the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes, who is a prototype of the coming Antichrist. You want to find out what the Antichrist is like? Well, Antiochus Epiphanes is a prototype. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll go through 36, 45, and the rest of the book and describe the future coming man of sin, the Antichrist or the Pseudochrist. So the first four sections of this prophecy took place between 536 and 164 B.C., several hundred years. In this section we're going to go through today, there are 135 fulfilled prophecies, historically fulfilled, already documented. The final prophetic section we'll go through next week regards the Antichrist. And the reign of the Antichrist takes place in the last seven years of this present age before the second coming of the Messiah. So this final seven-year period on planet Earth as we know it today is called the Tribulation. And the end of that seven-year period, King Jesus is going to return to Earth, put an end to wickedness and wicked ones, and he's going to establish his millennial kingdom uh, from Jerusalem. So here's our key idea for today. History does not depend on humans. History is his story. And God uses fallible people to fulfill his perfect purposes, which is very timely for us to remember, especially what's going on on planet Earth today. History does not depend on humans. History is, quote, his story, God's story, and God uses fallible people to fulfill his perfect purposes. I'm going to come back to that over time. Remember that. So the angel tells Daniel in verse 2, and now I tell you the truth, behold, Three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. So this first prophecy is about the nation of Persia. Now remember, Persia had conquered Babylon in 539 B.C., October 12th. So Persia's been in charge now for about three years. King Cyrus is on the throne. He issued the decree the first year of his reign, for the issue for the Jews to go back to the land. Cyrus dies in 530, about nine years after uh, he took power. 
His son, Cambyses, who ruled between 529 and 522, was very likely insane. He married two of his sisters, murdered his brother, who was also his heir, and then murdered one of his sisters who protested when he murdered his brother. Just saying. I said it's a soap opera. This is human nature on display in all its glory. So a Persian priest plotted an insurrection against him and seized the throne. Historians call this Persian priest Pseudo-Smyrnus. He reigned for less than a year, between 522 and 521. He was followed by Darius Anastaspes, who ruled from 521 to 486, about 35 years. And the fourth king, the fourth king that has been indicated here, was a Persian king named Xerxes, who is also known as Ahasuerus. If you read the book of Esther, they call this king Ahasuerus, same character. He ruled 20 years from 485 to 465, and he's the fourth king that Gabriel told Daniel is going to be influential, powerful, and wealthy. And he mobilized a massive army to invade Greece. Now, he was successful at subduing Greece at Thermopylae in 489 or 480, but the vast Persian fleet was absolutely destroyed by the Greek fleet at Salamis, the Battle of Salamis. The next year, his army was crushed at the Battle of Plataea. So Xerxes goes back home. And the events that took place at these battles took place between Esther 1 and Esther 2. So Esther 1 gives you one scene, all these battles took place, and then you get to Esther 2. Okay? Xerxes was assassinated in August of 465. By the way, the lifestyles of kings, uh, what's, the, what's the word? Heavy hangs the crown on the head or something like that? Let me tell you, you just pay attention to that in our world today. Verse 3. Then a mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases, verse 4, but as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor according to his own authority, which he wielded, for his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides him. These verses refer to Alexander the Great, who rose to power and conquered Asia, minus Syria, Egypt, and the Medo-Persian Empire in four years. 334 to 330, he conquered the bulk of the known world at that point in time. At age 33, however, he died in Babylon due to malaria and complications from alcoholism. His two young sons, Hercules and Alexander, one of them was born illegitimately, the other one was born after he died. They were murdered, along as, as well as his mentally retarded uncle, so he left no descendants, just as predicted. After 22 years of infighting, the empire was divided into four pieces, and that's what was predicted. Four of his leading generals. Rob's going to show you a map of the region at this point in time. The four generals that ruled over these areas, Cassander was the first one. He ruled over Macedonia and Greece. Lysimachus ruled, governed Asia Minor. The two big ones we're going to talk about today, Seleucus took the rest of Asia except for Palestine, and Ptolemy ruled over Egypt and Palestine. So we have four generals. The first two, Cassander and Lysimachus, were minor characters. The last two are major characters. And just as predicted, the empire became extremely weak and fragmented after Alexander's death. Now the next 15 verses of this chapter describe the struggles between 
the two dynasties. The Ptolemies of the Egypt in the south, that's the blue, and then, of course, the um, yellow is the Syria to the north of Israel. Both dynasties coveted the land of Israel, and Israel was between two major powers. By the way, that's not where you want to be. If everybody wants your turf and you're between them, guess what? You're being invaded all the time, first by one side and then another side, and that's the story of Israel for a couple of centuries here. The Ptolemies ruled over Egypt until 30 AD, and Seleucid dynasty lasted until 64 BC. So each one of these dynasties lasted about 250 years, 250 to 300 years. And how old is the United States? About 245, just to give you some perspective. There are multiple kings involved in these dynasties, upwards of 14. So the individual names are not used. The Bible never uses individual names. They simply say, the king of the south or the king of the north. And they could be describing multiple kings, but they're defined by their geography, not by name. Verse 5, let's pick up the soap opera. Then the king of the south will go strong, along with one of his princes who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion. His domain will be a great dominion indeed. So the king mentioned here is Ptolemy I of Egypt, he's in the south, who allied with Seleucus I of Syria to fight another one of Alexander's general, Antigonus. And they actually won a victory over Antigonus, and Seleucid, at the end of the day, of the north, ruled over more territory than Ptolemy. Ptolemy died in 285. Seleucus was murdered in 281. Verse 6. After some years, they will form an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement. But she will not retain her position of power, nor will he remain with his power. But she will be given up along with those who brought her in and the one who sired her as well as the one who supported her in those times. The kings referred to here are Ptolemy II and Antiochus II. Now, they hated each other, but they cut a deal and made an alliance in 250 B.C. Here's how you make alliances and cut treaties back in ancient times. You give your daughter to marry your enemy. You give your daughter to marry your enemy, and if they produce children, the opposite side won't come and trash your country because your grandchildren are there. You know, so it's a little bit hostage-taking, right? They made an alliance which was sealed with the marriage of Ptolemy II's daughter, Berenice, to Antiochus II. So the daughter of the king of, of Egypt married the king of Syria to the north. However, Ptolemy II of Egypt, he died in 246. And Antiochus II took back his first wife, Laodice, who he had divorced in order to marry Berenice, who was the daughter of the king of the south. The soap opera, like I said. By the way, the town of Laodicea in Revelations, named after this woman, Laodice. By the way, the town of Antioch in Syria where Paul started his church planting mission, was named after Antiochus. we got a whole rule of Antiochuses here. So Laodice uh, decided to get some revenge. She had Berenice murdered and the infant son by Antiochus. Both of them were killed. She also poisoned her husband Antiochus. No happily ever after in this drama, right? <laughs> Furthermore, it seems that all the diplomats and all the patrons who had supported Berenice were also murdered at the same time. 
So at this point in time, Laodice's son, Seleucus Callinicus, he succeeded to the throne after his father's murder. Verse 7. But one of the descendants of her line will arise in his place, and he will come against their army and enter the fortress of the king of the north. And he will deal with them and display great strength. Also, their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold, he will take into captivity to Egypt, and he on his part will refrain from attacking the king of the north for some years. So Berenice, king of the south's daughter, her father died. She has a brother named Ptolemy III, and he's now king of Egypt, and he's going to avenge her murder. So he invades Syria, kills Laodice, and seizes the port of Antioch. So he controls Syria and maintains it for the rest of his career. He returns to Egypt from Syria with a great deal of spoil. 2,500 idol statues. They say 40,000 talents of silver. That's about 3 million pounds of silver. That's a lot to carry by camel. Just saying, I've been on a camel, but 3 million pounds is a lot of silver as well as a lot of precious vessels uh, from various temples and Syrian treasures. And in, in essence, he looted the joint. And you're going to see this back and forth. When you invade a place, you steal everything that's valuable, take it back to your home turf. And then the next generation, they invade your place, steal all of it back. So it's going back and forth. Verse 9. Then the latter will enter into the realm of the king of the south, but he will return to his own land, his sons will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one of them will keep on coming and overflow and pass through, that he may again wage war up to his very fortresses. You'll notice when you read this, it's written in very general terms. It's very specific as to what occurred, but it's not specific as to who did it. Like I said, they use the term the king of the south and the king of the north. So Callinicus the king of the north, he tries to invade Egypt and he has to retreat back to Syria. He and Ptolemy III of Egypt sign another peace treaty in 240. He dies after falling off his horse, but he has two sons. One of them, Seleucus III, took the throne, but he was assassinated four years later while on a military campaign. So his 18-year-old brother, who we now know as Antiochus the Great. He was a very solid military general. He takes the throne and he rules from 223 to 187. So he really is a very strong military general. He assembles a great army with Jewish help and he drives the Ptolemies out of Israel. So Israel is in the middle and you're going to see Israel under the rule of the Syrians, under the rule of the Egyptians, under the rule of the Syrians, under the rule of the Egyptians. We have no clue what that is like. Just as we have no clue what it's like to live in a satellite state next to Russia, the Ukrainians. We really have no idea. We haven't had a battle in our home turf in 150 plus years. And we haven't been invaded by a foreign power since the War of 1812. We really have no idea what it's like to have somebody ruling over you, a battle, a bunch of your people get killed, and now you have a new overlord until the next generation or five years or ten years. It is an enormously difficult situation. Verse 11. The king of the south will be enraged and go forth and fight with the king of the north. Then the latter will raise a great multitude, 
but that multitude will be given into the hand of the former. When the multitude is carried away, his heart will be lifted up, and he will cause tens of thousands to fall, yet he will not prevail. So Ptolemy IV wants to avenge Egyptian losses. He's just gotten thrashed by Antiochus the Great, and he goes out to fight Antiochus the Great of Syria, which means they fight on Israel turf. The Battle of Raphia takes place in 219 B.C. Each side had more than 60,000 infantry, that's a big army for the day, 5,000 cavalry, and interestingly enough, both of them had somewhere between 60 and 70 elephants, which they used as battering rams. And, you know, if you want to push something over an elephant at that point in time is your bulldozer. So Ptolemy of Egypt kills over 10,000 Syrian troops, just as predicted, takes over 4,000 prisoners. Problem, Ptolemy IV was the kind of a guy who loved luxury. He loved indulgence. He didn't, you know, he was a playboy. He didn't like to fight. He'd rather love, right? So he never followed up on the victories. And as a result... His victory didn't last. His advantage didn't last. Verse 13, here's tit for tat. For the king of the north will again raise a greater multitude than before, and after an interval for some years, he will press on with a great army and much equipment. Now in those times, many will rise up against the king of the south. The violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they will fall down. So it's 203 B.C., Ptolemy and his wife in Egypt, they die. And they leave their kingdom in Egypt to their four-year-old son. Somehow I don't think this is going to turn out well. Named Ptolemy V. So two years later, when this young man is now six, Antiochus the Great from the north raises another army. And for the first time, he has Jewish support. There's Jewish extremists, violent insurrectionists, apostate Jews, didn't follow the Mosaic law. They wanted Jewish independence. And Ptolemy was running Egypt at that point, and they said, you know, if we ally with Antiochus, the devil we know is better than the devil we currently have, and so let's do a deal with Antiochus. Let's ally with him. If he can throw the Ptolemies out, maybe we can have independence. So they allied with him. They attacked Egypt, and they lost their shirts. The Ptolemy general was named Scopus. He defeated them, and the Jewish dream of independence remained unfulfilled at that point in time. Verse 15. Then the king of the north will come, cast up a siege ramp, capture a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south will not stand their ground. Not even their choicest troops, for there will be no strength to make a stand. But he who comes against him will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to withstand him. He will also stay for a time in the beautiful land with destruction in his hand. He will set his face to come with the power of his whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposal of peace, which he will put into effect. He will also give in the daughter of women to ruin it, but he will not take, she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. So the city in question here is Sidon. We know Antiochus the Great overthrew the fortified city of Sidon after a siege, and he wants control of the land of Palestine. So he wanted the peace treaty with Egypt. So in 197, surprise, surprise, he arranges for his daughter Cleopatra I. Now this is not the Cleopatra of a couple centuries later who 
was the lover of Mark Antony and Julius Caesar. This is Cleopatra I in 197. And he arranges for her to marry Ptolemy, king of Egypt. Problem. Ptolemy I, king of Egypt, is 10 years old. So the actual marriage didn't occur until 193. So now he's all of 14, right? So, the, so they had to delay this thing a little bit to give it some sense of propriety, right? So it's a political arrangement. That's what it boils down to. By the way, this business about there being love in marriage, eh, not so much. If you were royalty, you were a pawn, and you were going to be used to accomplish political purposes. That was the mission, right? That's the goal. Now, Antiochus gave his daughter to Ptolemy of Egypt because she was hoping that she would be a spy for him in Egypt. Furthermore, she was hoping that he would sway, she would sway her husband to support him because he was going to declare war on Rome and he wanted Egyptian support before he declared war on Rome. However, Cleopatra supported her husband against her father's interests and his plan fell through. This is a warning against meddling in-laws, right? right? Your children are going to work out their own marriages. Just like you did. Just like you're doing. Kind of, sort of, right? So you're going to pray for them. You're not going to make arrangements for them. Now I know I'm meddling, just saying. All right. Verse 18. Then he will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many. But a commander will put a stop to his scorn against him. Moreover, he will repay him for his scorn. So he will put, turn his face to the fortresses of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. So Antiochus the Great from Syria in the north attacks the islands and borders of Greece by the Aegean Sea. However, Scipio Asiaticus, the Roman commander, defeated Antiochus twice, once at Thermopylae in 191 and then again at Apamea in 188. So Antiochus heads back home, and he does something that makes absolutely no sense. He tries to break in the temple treasuries of his own land and steal the gods and goddesses made out of gold and silver from his own temple treasuries. And the people of the land became so angry they murdered him in 187. If you want a long life expectancy, do not become a king or a queen. Probably you'll live a lot longer, right? Verse 20, then in his place one will arise who will send an oppressor throughout the jewel of his kingdom, yet within a few days he will be shattered, though not in anger or in battle. So Antiochus the Great dies from Syria, murdered. He's succeeded by his son, Seleucius IV. Now he's got a problem as a king. Number one, he's got an empty treasury because his daddy spent it all. Number two, Rome said as a result of your meddling, you owe us taxes and tribute. He's got no money, and he's got a big tax bill from the Roman Empire. So he sends his prime minister and his treasurer named Heliodorus to go into the temple at Jerusalem and seize all the treasures. That's the jewel of the kingdom. The jewel of the kingdom is, is Jerusalem. It's Israel. And he wants him to steal all the treasures from the temple so he can pay Rome. Unfortunately and mysteriously, Seleucius IV dies immediately thereafter. Turns out he was poisoned by Heliodorus, his treasurer, right? Who also wanted to be king. Are you getting the sense that human nature here reveals that not a lot has changed since Adam and Eve? 
Really, not a lot. Greed, pride, plots, deception, jealousy, revenge, murder, wars, fill in the blanks, are endemic to human nature. It's who we are. So when you look at the world today and you see the geopolitics and the shifting and the fill in the blanks, whatever kind of crisis you want to talk about, this is not new. This is who humans are. That's why God said, all have sinned and fall short. You don't have to read too much news flow on your, your phone to realize that it's usually news flow that reveals the sinfulness of human nature. Amen? You don't doubt we need a savior. You also don't doubt we need a king to rule because we're not doing a very good job of it. That's not news. It's never been good. God has a plan. When Jesus Christ comes back to planet Earth, he will rule. And the, the important thing to realize is when we're going through this drama and trauma of the human condition, God's purposes always come to pass using very sinful, fallible, broken people. God's purposes are never limited by human sin. If they were, we'd never get anything done. But God accomplishes his purpose even through sinful people who will accomplish what he wants to accomplish despite themselves. So now we're going to take a look at one of the most notorious characters in history. His name is Antiochus Epiphanes of Syria. Now he gave himself the title Epiphanes. Epiphanes means the glorious one. This guy didn't have any problem with self-esteem, right? He was just delusional. His people called him Epimenes, which means the madman. And you're going to see very shortly, he behaved like a madman pretty routinely. This person is a prototype of the coming Antichrist. If you want to know what the character and conduct of the Antichrist is going to be like, he'll give you a little picture, verse 21. In his place, a despicable person will arise, on whom the honor of kingship has not been confirmed, but he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. The overflowing forces will be flooded the way before him and shattered also the prince of the covenant. After an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception. He will go up and gain power with a small force of people. So God's description of this guy is a vile, contemptible person. You do not want that as your character description from Almighty God. Now, he did not inherit the throne. He seized it by deceit and fraud. His brother, remember, was poisoned. So the throne was supposed to go to his brother's son, Demetrius Soter, but he was unfortunately being held in hostage in Rome. So Antiochus seized the throne from his nephew by winning the support of key politicians in the kingdom, made him promises, flattered him, etc., etc. The prince of the covenant here is Onias III. Onias III is the high priest in Jerusalem, and he is a faithful Mosaic law obedient priest. Unfortunately, Onias had a brother named Jason. His name was Joshua, but he changed his name to Jason so he would be considered more acceptable to the Greeks. And his brother Jason bribed Antiochus to give him the high priesthood. Gave him a lot of money. Fortunately or unfortunately, there's a third brother named Menelaus. And he offered Antiochus an even greater bribe than brother Jason did for the high priesthood. So Menelaus, the youngest one, murders his brother Onias. 
And that really angered the Jews, which in turn angered Antiochus against the Jews. So Antiochus makes an alliance with Egypt, but he breaks it in 170 by invading Egypt. Now, he began with a very small number of supporters. Remember, he got the kingdom by intrigue, but he's a very clever politician. He knows how to make promises, flattery, deception, and he grows the power of his kingdom extremely quickly. Verse 24. In a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm, and he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, beauty, and booty and possessions among them, and he will devise his schemes against strongholds, but only for a time. He will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south with a large army. So the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war, but he will not stand. For schemes will be devised against him. Those who eat his choice food will destroy him. And his army will overflow, but many will fall down slain. So it's a time of peace now in Syria. Antiochus is going to grow his power base, and he does it like clever. He steals from the rich and distributes what he's stolen, the plunder and the beauty and the possessions, to supporters to win favor. Does this sound familiar? Right? We have all these billionaire oligarchs that somehow manage to get the wealth from the public treasury. Nothing is new under the sun, right? So this guy's like Robin Hood, except he doesn't distribute it to the poor because they can't do anything for him. He distributes it to key people in exchange for their support. This is what all dictators wind up doing. They have to support their coalition to keep them in power. However, if anyone opposes him, he says he's going to plot to destroy him. In short term, his plans succeed. So his own kingdom is secure. He now mobilizes an army, attacks the king of the south, who is Ptolemy Philometer. It's the son of his own sister, Cleopatra. So he attacks his nephew in Egypt. You know, you really don't want to be part of this family. You think your family's got issues? Your family has no issues, right? So he raises a very large army, but he loses the battle of Pelusium because he's betrayed by his friends. So the king of Egypt is sold out by people that ate at his table in the palace. These are people he supported. These are people he thought were his friends. He was sold out by them, and he is, loses the battle as a result of that. And of course, after he loses the battle, Egypt and Syria have a peace conference, which, surprise, surprise, didn't produce any peace. Verse 27 kind of tells us what's going on. As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil, and they will speak lies to each other at the same table. But it will not succeed, for the end is still to come at the appointed time. Then he will return to his land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the Holy Covenant, and he will take action and return to his own land. So Antiochus from Syria defeats Ptolemy from the Egyptians, from the south, and the rest of the Egyptians put Ptolemy's brother, Eugertus, on the throne of this place. So Antiochus says to Ptolemy, they just defeated, look, you ally with me and we'll take out your brother, and I'll put you back on the throne, even though I just whooped you in battle. The two brothers are doing deals behind the side and say, look, we're family, we'll get together, we'll assassinate Antiochus, and we'll get rid of him. Right? So it's kind of a three-way deal here at that point. Now, in Oriental cultures, it was considered absolutely despicable 
to deceive someone you shared a meal with. In that era, if you shared a meal, that was friendship and loyalty and protection and concern. You would never, ever deceive and plot against someone you shared a meal with. Well, it tells you the despicable nature of these characters at that point. Everyone's eating in line at this peace table, right? Now, at the same time, this peace conference is going on. There's a rumor in Israel that Antiochus has been killed. And the Jews have a party. And Antiochus is absolutely outraged that anybody would take joy at his death. So he marches against the Jews coming back into Syria from Egypt. He sacks the city of Jerusalem, kills 40,000 Jews in three days, takes another 40,000 as slaves. He loots the Jewish temple of its treasures, takes them back to Syria in the north. Verse 29. At the appointed time, he will return and come back into the south, but this last time it will not turn out the way it did before. For ships of Kittim will come against him, therefore he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action. So we will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, do away the regular sacrifice, underline this, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. Let me unpack this for you. It's 168. Antiochus, remember, had cut a peace treaty a couple years before. Well, he decides that's no longer workable. He breaks the alliance he had made, reinvades Egypt, and I want you to notice in your scripture, it says, at the appointed time. Who did the appointment? God does the appointment. See, we humans, we think we're in charge. We go, I am going to do blah, blah, blah. James says, that's really, really stupid. You should say, if the Lord wills, I'm going to do blah, 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 right? So, Everything takes place on God's calendar. Nothing surprises God. You think God said, whoops, I didn't see the invasion coming? Not really, not at all. Everything is on his appointed schedule. Nothing surprises God. Everything is subject to his calendar. Ecclesiastes 3, there's an appointed time for everything. So Antiochus may have thought he was in charge. God's sovereignty encompasses everything. All events, timelines, human decisions, wars, etc., etc. So Antiochus, the second invasion of Egypt was unsuccessful. The first one was successful. This one was a failure. So the Ptolemies in Egypt had appealed to Rome. Rome was a rising republic. And Rome sent ships from Kittim. That's another word for Cyprus, a little island in the Mediterranean. So Antiochus lands near Alexandria, the city after Alexander the Great, and he finds the Roman fleet waiting for him, which he had not anticipated. The Roman representative is named Populus Laenus, and he gives Antiochus a letter from the Roman Senate that says, you leave Egypt, go back to Syria. And Antiochus says, well, I got to think about it. So we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Populus draws a circle in the sand around Antiochus. He's in the sand with his walking stick, and he says, you cross the line in the sand before giving me an answer. It's a declaration of war. You're inside that circle. You better give me an answer. You step across that line without giving me an answer. It's a declaration of war, and we will march on you. Well, Antiochus doesn't want to declare war in Rome, so he agrees to leave Egypt. But he is hot. He's humiliated, and he takes all his rage, and he directs it at the Jews. 
and he makes an alliance with the apostate Jews who re rejected God's covenant, they embraced Greek culture, and they join him in attacking their fellow Jews who do follow the Mosaic law. Now, this is pretty traitorous, treasonous. Here's what he does. He posts guards around the Jewish temple so no one could worship. He outlaws the daily sacrifice, twice daily sacrifice, against the law, under penalty of death. He orders the Jews to stop worshiping God. He confiscates and burns the copies of the Mosaic Law. If you're found with a copy of the Mosaic Law, it's a death sentence. He forbids circumcision. He forces the priests to eat pork. Right? It's, it, this guy is weak, wicked. On a Sabbath day, when he knows there's not much resistance, he sends his soldiers into the city and slaughters women and children. His final abomination, if you will, he offers a sow as a sacrifice on the holy altar inside the temple, and he erects an image of Zeus, the chief Greek god, in the temple. He forces people on his birthday every year to sacrifice a sow in the temple. Now, this was the abomination of desolation. Abomination means something that's vile, abhorrent, loathsome, detestable, and desolation means something that is ruined, it's wasted, it's destroyed. He had defiled and ruined the holy temple by his evil. And this is just a foretaste of what Antichrist is going to do. When Antichrist shows up, he won't set up an image of Zeus in the temple, in Jewish temple. He'll set up his image of himself. And he will demand that the entire world worship him as God. Verse 32. We're back to Antiochus. By smooth words... He's talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. He will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many. Yet they will fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days. Here's the principle. God's people possess God's power to resist evil even in the face of suffering and death. God's people possess God's power to resist evil, even in the face of suffering and death. We're not talking about your own power. We're talking about the power of God in you to give you that strength. So Antiochus encouraged apostate Jews to attack each other, and he promised to reward them, right? So this evil created righteous anger, and opposition from faithful Jews. Many Jews chose rather to die than defile God's covenant. Others called the Hasidines organized a resistance to overthrow Antiochus' rule in Israel. Mattathias Maccabeus, the father of five sons, led the resistance. He killed Antiochus' representative, refused to um, worship false gods, and then he fled to the mountains and began a, result, a revolt. He had five sons. One of them was named was Judas Maccabeus, who really took over the revolt, the Maccabean revolt. Maccabeus, by the way, the name means the hammer, which was really appropriate because they did throw off uh, Antiochus' rule. The Jews, who had insight into God's word, taught the people God's promises. It's extremely important that we understand this. It says what? Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many. You cannot obey what you do not know. That's one of the reasons we are passionate at Valley Baptist Church to teach God's word so we understand what God says so we can do what he says. So 
understanding the will of the Lord is important and understanding God's perspective on what's going on in the world is important so you don't wind up reacting like the world does with fear or doing foolish things because you fail to recognize the sovereignty of God. So there were Jews who had insight into God's word and they taught the people what God said. However, many faithful Jews were slaughtered because Antiochus usually attacked them on the Sabbath day when they wouldn't fight back, you know. The notion was, don't do any work on the Sabbath. That includes taking up a sword and defending yourself. And he knew that. However, over time, they did overthrow his rule and restore the Mosaic Law. They did cleanse the temple. They dedicated the altar on December 14, 165. And they celebrate that every year. It's called the Feast of Lights. What do we call it? Hanukkah, right? That's the celebration. It's been going on ever since. Now, Antiochus Epiphany died in Persia in 163. He was considered insane. He certainly lived up to his nickname, Antiochus Epimenes, which means Antiochus the madman. Verse 34. Now, when they fall, they will be granted a little help, and many will join them in hypocrisy. Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time, because it is still to come at the appointed time. Here's the principle. God loves his people so much that he uses suffering to purify them from sin and draw them to himself. God loves his people so much that he uses suffering to purify them from sin and draw them to himself. So this rebellion against Antiochus was ultimately successful, but it was very, very costly. It cost a lot of lives. Some who joined the Maccabean resistance against Antiochus were traitors. They were either wanted to be on the winning side, they were greedy for gain, or they were spies for Antiochus. So eventually the Maccabeans had to purge their own ranks, and it was blood. Many godly people died in this struggle for Jewish freedom. However, God tells you what his purpose is. He used the struggle to refine and purify Israel from sin. Throughout history, God has used suffering to draw his people closer to himself. Would you agree? Has that been your experience? Nothing will draw us closer to the Savior than suffering. Nothing will cause us to depend on him and stop depending on ourselves than running into circumstances that we cannot manage, that we cannot control. And we have to say like Jesus did in the garden, not my will, but thine be done. That's when we learn to depend. That's when we draw closer. And fortunately or unfortunately, probably extremely fortunately, that's when we have the most wonderful times of intimacy with Jesus Christ is when our world has fallen apart. Because we stop looking at circumstances and we stop trusting in other people and promises and the things of this world, which are going to fall apart. And God knows that's going to happen. He knows that he is the only source of our joy, the only source of our contentment, the only source of our salvation. So he's very, very willing to use temporary suffering in order for eternal blessing to take place. Short-term pain for long-term gain is always a good trade. Did I just say that? Short-term pain for long-term gain is always a good trade. It's true. When you're in the middle of short-term pain, it's easy to go, oh, God, I would do anything if you stopped the pain. I used to tell the Lord, I know you do this because you love me. Can you love me less? 
And then I look back and I go, did that really fall out of my stupid mouth? Did I really say that? Because the love of the Lord is the most priceless thing on planet Earth. There is no treasure greater than intimacy with Jesus Christ. Nothing. And there's no price that's not willing to pay for that. So God has an appointed time for everything, both suffering and salvation. There are times of peace and there are times of war. When you look around the world, it seems as though we may be transitioning into another phase. We've been in this one really since the World War II, and we kind of wonder, okay, we've, what, what we think we know about how the world works may no longer be how it works. Guess what? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The source of your confidence is not how the geopolitical world operates or doesn't operate. It is the Lord of history who is going to carry his people through whatever he chooses to carry them through. God was willing to do this because God's plan for Israel is found in Romans 11.26. And it's a promise. It says, all Israel will be saved. And you say, oh my. But that means they go through the tribulation in order to accomplish that objective. That's how much God loves Israel. God's heartbeat is that everyone would be saved. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You know, if it takes suffering for you and I to come to repentance and bring our lives back in alignment with God's will and way, God will arrange for you to suffer. Because he loves you. And you do the same for your children and grandchildren, don't you? Say yes. You love them, and because you love them, you're going to do what's in their long-term best interest. Because you love them. And God loves us that much times infinity. Okay, I realize this was a historically heavy, very detailed passage. I wanted to illustrate for you that we serve a sovereign God whose purposes come to pass regardless of human intent. Most of these people were godless. They didn't care about God, and many of you are in circumstances, you're going, Brad, you don't understand. I'm dealing with godless people. That doesn't surprise God. He's in charge of them, just like he's in charge of you. No one escapes his sovereignty. So you have circumstances that are difficult. Believe me, your Heavenly Father knows that, and he is arranging and organizing them for his glory and your long-term good. Okay, let's summarize, and then Tom will come and do prayer and praise. Number one, history does not depend on humans. History is his story, and God uses fallible, sinful, broken people to fulfill his perfect purposes. Number two, God's people, that's you, possess God's power to resist evil, even in the face of suffering and death. Number three, God loves his people so much that he uses even suffering to purify them from sin and draw them to himself. I love you guys. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. 
Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.